It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. I hope you're managing to stay at home or stay alert, depending on where in the UK you live. And if you don't live in the UK, hope you find in your uh, own government's advice not too confusing. The importance of clear communication is something I discussed with today's guest, Tom Tugendhat, because as well as being chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, he's also a former military man. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's interesting to get his assessment, given that uh, communication is so important in the military, can have life or death consequences. So it's interesting to hear his take on that. But on the whole, this isn't really a coronavirus chat. We talk a lot about China. And of course, we talk about um, coronavirus in that context, about what China knew and when in terms of uh, its government, about wet markets, about data, and not just the hiding of data, but the falsification of it. And we have a broader conversation about how countries like Britain and countries of our size can influence nations like China and and what Britain's approach should be. Should we be, for instance, allowing Huawei access to our 5G network? Um, You may not be surprised to hear what Tom thinks about that, but I I shall not give you any spoilers. It's also a discussion about Britain's role in the world. Uh, It does focus predominantly on China, but we talk about India as well. And of course, we talk about Tom's incredible military experience. Uh, This is such a deep and engaging conversation. And I know I say this a lot, but we didn't get through half of the things I wanted to talk about with Tom. I really wanted to talk about India with him as well. But he's such an engaging talker. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I began by asking Tom uh, whether I pronounced his surname, Tugendhat, correctly. Uh, I say Tom Tugendhat, but um, others say uh, many different things, and some of them are even, uh, you know, printable. <laughs> first things first, um, are you clear what the government is asking of you, and are you staying alert? 
I, I, I think that eternal vigilance is the uh, is the price of carpets. And for anybody who's uh, who's who's had moths invade their homes, you'll know that staying alert is uh, is is absolutely essential for, for carpets and wool and all other. Anyway, there you go. I'm staying alert. <laughs> but you're um you're a man with a military background. You know the importance of clear message, clear communication, so that people can carry out what's expected of them. Do you think the message is clear now? Well, I think. Um, I think the government is trying to do something incredibly difficult, which is to help people to um, put their phones on. Silent. Know how to? Sorry, <laughs> to help people put their phones on silent. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> what was that? <laughs> this is this is actually because we're doing this off the computer. The, the various sort of different notifications, as it you know, incomes and emails. So I've just switched off some of these. Okay, so sorry about that. Okay, this is <laughs> this is clearly a hugely professional recording outfit. What you can't see, just by the way, for the listener at home, is I can see Matt, and that, you know, that that negligee really doesn't go with your <laughs> I wish that would be a great thing to do to guests, actually, knowing that this is <laughs> only going to be released in audio, would be to dress... Um, dress in drag. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love the way you're saying it, as though you weren't actually already in drag. But there you go. Sadly, I'm just in a forest tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> So, we, we, uh, sorry, where were we? Yes, just about, just about, with your military background, you know, the, the importance of giving clear messages and clear direction. You know, stay at home was really clear. Is stay alert as clear? And if, I mean, does it matter in a way? Well, it, what matters is that the government has set out, and I thought they did this uh, pretty sensibly, actually. They set out the complexity that they're dealing with. And I think that's what's, that's why this message has been different, but also, um, are pretty important because the reality is that the government can't tell 65 million people in the United Kingdom exactly what is the appropriate reaction to every single circumstance they're going to face every day. I mean, it's you know, that's crazy, you can't do that. So, what they're doing instead is they're saying, Look, there's a huge risk out there, and we know it, and what we're trying to do is limit it. And so, here are some things that you need to think about before you engage in anything, right? Can you go to work? Do you need to go to work? If you do need to go to work, if you can't work from home, if you do need to go to work, do, but be careful how you do it. Try and avoid public transport. Does that mean you can absolutely guarantee that you can't, you must never travel on public transport? No, but be careful, be reasonable. And as the situation changes, you know, with the all too famous now, our number goes up or down or whatever, then the conditions will change too. So I thought actually, to be fair to, to, to Boris Johnson, I thought he did pretty well at explaining that. And I, I thought, you know, if you if you want him if you want him to sit there like your dad and tell you whether or not you can go out at night, uh, he's not going to do that because that's not his job. But what he is going to do is he's uh, and I thought it was fair enough is he he'll set out, you know, the 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 conditions that he sees and 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 how to address it. Obviously, this all started in China, and it's something that's very close to your heart as well as being chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. You set up the China Research Group. So, what is the group? Who can join it? And why did you set it up? All right, Matt, you're you're a bit of a groupie, aren't you? A political groupie. <laughs> who, <clears throat> who is uh, who's the president of the United States? Uh, Donald Trump. Right. Who's the Secretary of State of the United States? Oh, don't start this, crikey! Oh my God. Um, okay, you know the problem is once we get into um, once we get into quizzes, I get I'm gonna feel stupid. Okay, but Matt, you you you'll know when I say Secretary Pompeo. Of course, you'll Mike know Pompeo. Me, Damn it. You'll know me, no, for some reason, I had John Bolton in my head. Oh, he, he was so embarrassing. Good, 
but the very fact you see the very fact that we can have this conversation and you've got various different americans in in your head and you kind of know who they are and okay i'm slightly tricked you know catching you up you could probably do the same with a few germans a few french a few italians right who's the foreign minister of china i couldn't tell you that i, I mean beyond xi jinping i couldn't tell you any of them exactly right and this is the point the point is that for most british parliamentarians other than president xi people couldn't just couldn't tell you anything about it now this is a hugely important country this is a country with which we've got to have massively close relations in various areas but we've got to be cautious in others and we you know when was the last time you read the speech of any chinese official at any rank at all my guess is never right yeah. I, i mean maybe i'm wrong but my guess is never and i suspect that's true for most of our colleagues now the extraordinary thing is people are at the moment pretty surprised by what's coming out of china and pretty surprised as you know the reactions of the chinese government to various things but actually if you read any of the speeches by president xi for the last eight years none of this is a surprise he he's not only signaled it he's advertised it he's stated it he's been as clear as you can possibly be as to what he's trying to do but we just haven't read it and so what we're trying to do is not to be pro chinese or anti chinese is not not about that it's just to say look this is a really important country we've got to have relations with them but we've also got to understand what they're saying they've got their domestic interests perfectly legitimate we've all got our domestic interests uh, and we need to understand what theirs are so that we can actually have a proper relationship so the group itself is is uh, is it only open to conservative mp's well it's it's as ever with these things it's easier to set it up as a as a conservative group but the reality is if you if you want to get absolutely everything that we do go go on to the website put in your details and you'll get the email there is literally no more secrets of that you know so that's it you know in the it, it, it it's not you know, there there is no secret discussions there's no you know, there's no private chats that's it so obviously it's the crg because we've had the erg we've had the European research group that became uh, notorious really around Brexit despite the fact that it existed for a very long time in 20 years time is the CRG going to be described as a party within a party no, this kind of it, anti-chinese thing that is going to create a new cold war no i don't think so i don't think so but i i hope what it will do is it will uh it will have at that point a body of um reports and speeches and you know bits of public information that the chinese government has put out uh in english that british parliamentarians can read and not just parliamentarians but journalists and and anybody else who's interested frankly because you know helping people to get uh, a bit better informed about a, a hugely important trading partner is you know i think it's a really important thing to do and so i think it's i think it's exactly what we should be doing and i think promoting it you know yeah I mean, it's a conservative thing at the moment, but let's be honest, in a, in a in much more cross-party way is, is an important thing to do. The ERG was in theory cross-party, but it ended up not always being seen as such. I mean, I was joking about the, the comparisons with the ERG, I guess, but in a way, does that provide a model for interest groups within parties? Yeah, I, it, I mean, it does. I mean, the ERG became more than it started off as being, right? I mean, it, it started off as being... uh simply a reporting mechanism for what was going on in Brussels and and whatever you think you know whatever you think about the outcome the, the truth is those of us on on the you know on the on the european side of the argument weren't good enough 
at doing the study and working out what was going on and explaining, you know, explaining the case and and people who wanted uh, a different outcome did their homework. <laughs> you know, funny that, isn't it? That life <laughs> life tends to be won by the people who get up early, do their homework, and go. You know, just just how it ends up, really. So, do you? I mean, I don't want to dwell on the ERG comparison, to be honest, but do you think? Just as the ERG predated a, a kind of intellectual or, or, or um, you know, social conflict with with Europe, do, do you do you foresee a time when actually China becomes a far bigger deal for Britain, and that within our country there will be a far bigger debate about our relationship with China? Not quite on the same way that we did with the EU, but 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 on some on an increasing scale. I think I think that there are a few countries that are going to dominate our. Um, national debate because the influence they will have on us in different ways. Um, I think the European Union, in some way, will continue to play a major part because you know we can we can leave the table, but the table's still there, right? I mean, <laughs> the European Union still exists, and we're still going to have to deal with it. Um, the US is going to remain a very dominant uh, element of our you know foreign policy discussion, but also of our domestic discussion. Uh, China, of course, and I suspect countries that we're not talking about enough now like India, um, Indonesia, um, Pakistan, Nigeria, and, you know, maybe even Brazil will start to really grow in importance so that we actually start to be concerned as to what, you know, what does the president of Nigeria think about this question? What does the, you know, what does the prime minister of India think about this question? Because large populous countries that are connected to us in various different ways through history, through um, migration through whatever it is, or simply through trade, are going to be hugely important. And, and you know, how we deal with them will depend on how we understand their own politics and how we understand what they're trying to get out of us as well. So I, I, I suspect that you know, in years to come, each of these areas will have maybe not those exact countries, but each of these areas will have uh, a major impact on the UK. Just on China's handling of, of the coronavirus. Uh, pandemic and the crisis that has engulfed the world people's two primary concerns seem to be the wet markets themselves where it looks like this this virus came from and also the not just secrecy around data but the falsifying of data are are they the are they your two primary concerns yeah i mean you know the Chinese government have been warned since 2002, 2003 by Chinese scientists, by the way, I'm not talking about, you know, outside. Chinese scientists have been heroically calling out the Chinese government since the SARS outbreak of nearly 20 years ago, that these wet markets are a problem, right? And that they are incubating, you know, or potentially incubating really serious disease. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a surprise, right? This is, this is, this is something that China's own scientists have been saying. And yet here we are, you know, 20 years later with an outbreak that has now gone around the world. And you could say, well, you know, just a bit unlucky. Yeah, they could have done something about the wet markets, but still, they're just unlucky. It's, it's, I'm afraid it's more than that. If it was just that, then we'd have to deal with it, of course, but, but would at least be dealing off a, a level playing field, as it were. We'd be dealing off a, a, off a common understanding. But the problem is, we don't know when this started. We really don't know when the Chinese state knew about it. They definitely knew about it by January because uh, a Chinese doctor, ophthalmologist called Li Wenyang, 
was uh, arrested and forced to recant for spreading false rumors, but he courageously called out uh, the police who were doing it and, uh, and, and trying to silence him. Uh, really, really uh, heroic individual. So we know at that point that the Chinese state knew about it and knew about it at a central national level, but was trying to silence it. It now appears, because of various uh, reporting that's come out, that they may have known about this as early as October, possibly November. So there are some real questions now as to what was covered up and when. Because it's not just that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has put the Chinese people at great danger, which is, of course, the first people who have been uh, put in danger by this terrible disease of the Chinese people. But it's that by failing to act, by failing to be honest with what's going on, they put the whole world at risk. And the, the reality is that we're now trying to react. And this is where, you know, I'm hugely sympathetic, not just to our government, but to governments around the world who are trying to learn how to treat or cope with or limit this disease. Because, of course, the only way you can do it, it's a new disease, right? You can't, you can't look at anything historic or not much historic. What you've got to do is you've got to look at what other people are doing around the world and, and try things out. Some things that you know Germany does are going to be right. Some things Germany does are going to be wrong. Something Italy and so on. And so what we're doing is we're looking around the world and we're saying, OK, Germany did that. Did it work? No, it didn't. OK, well, let's not do that. Then we try something else and then they look at us and say, oh, well, Britain did that. Did it work? Yeah, that worked. Well, no, that didn't. So Now, of course, a lot of us have been basing those early responses off what worked in China, right? Because they tried, they had more time to try it out, right? Well, it now turns out that we were basing it off total fiction. The problem with that is not, okay, well, it's mildly embarrassing. It's actually, you have just put at risk and probably cost the lives of thousands of people in the UK and around the world because you've lied. And you'll forgive me, I'm pretty cross about that. I think, you know, it's one thing to have a pandemic break out in your country and you can be understanding about it. It's quite another to deliberately falsify the information and lie about it, putting at risk thousands of Chinese people, first of all, and then thousands of people around the world. I think that's pretty outrageous behavior by the Chinese Communist Party. So what are the measures that we've copied from China that have turned out to effectively been based on falsehoods? Well, I'm not saying that we've copied any individual measure, but we're basing our responses off an understanding of how the disease spread. So in the early stages, the Chinese Communist Party was adamant that this, was, that this could only transmit uh, animal to human. Well, now it turns out they knew that was false when they said it. So the World Health Organization was telling people, no, no, don't worry about locking down your country. Don't worry about closing your borders. It's only animal to human. So, so long as you don't import a, a bat that's got it, you're fine. Which is why the World Health Organization and others were really critical when uh, Australia closed their borders and the Chinese government were incredibly rude about them. I mean, really rude about them in a, in a, in a very aggressive, very undiplomatic fashion. And it turns out, of course, the Australian government were absolutely right. You know, this did translate. This did it's, translate. Fa it's fascinating that judgment of the WHO then, because when people, you know, we're living in a period where faith in institutions, not just government, but the BBC, the European Union, for a period, the UN, um, is being tested. The WHO is something for a lot of people that just sounds above politics. 
and they are taken as experts and we would absolutely listen to what they say. But it sounds like they have failed as well. Well, they're a UN body. And uh, like all UN bodies, they're very heavily influenced by large uh, members. And China is one of the largest members. So, yeah, they're influenced. Just on China's handling of the crisis, then, when you talk about the you know the, the time lag between SARS and now and those warnings that were coming from inside the country from Chinese experts, did they act on any of that that advice at all? Has had there been any changes to wet markets in that time? Well, uh, wet markets seems still have been going for about twenty years. No, no, no particular change. No, no change in regulation or a reduction of size or anything like that. It's just sort of well, carried on and fettered. This is this is a government that has in recent months been saying that. Uh, you know, these are cultural practices and it's just like a farmer's market. And, you know, you really can't, uh, you know, you really can't, um, you can't judge them for that. But look, I mean, I go to the Shibin, well, I have been to the Shibin farmer's market, which just, by the way, if you want to go, it's still open on Saturdays and Thursdays, please go. Um, you can't buy live animals in the Shibin farmer's market. You can buy some pretty good Scotch eggs, but I tell you, the chicken that laid them is not sitting there ready to be slaughtered, right? This is not, this is not what a farmer's market is, in, like in Kent, I mean, you know, maybe where you're from, Matt, it's a bit different. <laughs> sort of the wilds of North London, where the live guacamole is herded into the. Uh, herded well, I'm from in. Nottingham, we used to have Goose Fair in uh, Nottingham City. Did you? So that's, um, you know, I suppose that was a, a precursor to the wet market. That was a Nottingham version, the old Goose Fair. Well, the legacy of it, you mean? It was the it was the last <laughs> it was the last example of a wet market in the UK, probably. But the, yeah, yeah. I mean, other than the ritual slaughter of quinoa in North London, I think, I think, uh, I, I think, uh, I think wet markets have broadly speaking gone out of fashion in the UK. Thank God. When you and, talk about uh, you know the cultural argument that, that the Chinese Communist Party might advance, is that something that you do have to be mindful of, though? In in and that Western and, and basically non-Chinese politicians and commentators have to be careful about is the way these things are talked about is, is to not appear to be pejorative about Chinese people. Well, I mean, I think it's perfectly obvious by the way some people talk about it, what they mean. I mean, many of us have been incredibly praising of Chinese scientists and Chinese democ- democratic countries that have actually managed this well. So countries like Taiwan, for example, which are, you know, they are the, 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 the Republic of China um, as was, as it were, before the communist overthrow of the, uh, of the Republican government. Um, and they, you know, they're, in that sense, they're exactly the same people as the people in Beijing, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're culturally of the same, of the same route. And, and yet they've handled this very well. They don't have wet markets. They've clamped down on those issues. And they, you know, they manage an open and, uh, and, and free democracy in a Chinese system. So this isn't a question about being Chinese or not, it's a question of being a communist dictatorship or not. You know, if you are run by a communist dictatorship, guess what? There's a few things we pretty well know about communist dictatorships. One, they don't give a damn about their people and are quite happy to see them die so long as the regime survives. Two, they're quite happy to lie quite a lot most of the time. You know, this is not about being Chinese. We've seen communist dictatorships around the world doing exactly the same thing. This is this is just a simple fact about being a communist dictatorship. And, you know, this particular communist dictatorship claims that it can do nothing about wet markets, but it can round up Christians. It can imprison Muslims of over a million Muslims in the, in the west of the in the west of the country. It can clamp down on, you know, 
75-year-old democratic activists from the late 1990s, like Martin Lau in Hong Kong. But, but they can't stop wet markets? I mean, seriously, you know, this is just total fiction. Do you think the message will get through now? Do you think, for whatever reason, whether it's national pride, if nothing else, the government will of China will want to stop wet markets or clamp down on them? I, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not going to predict what the uh, what General Secretary Xi is going to decide to do with his uh, with his personal personal possessions. I mean, that's not particularly hopeful to hear. I think obviously a lot of people. It's been one of their primary concerns: is what if this happens again? It's a fair question, and this is you know this is why the question of how we deal with China is really important because of course you know there are so many areas we want to deal. With China, first of all, China scientists are remarkable. I mean, you know, we are blessed to live in a world where such people uh, have brought such innovation. Secondly, China is a hugely important country. I mean, it's just demographically, it's massive. So, decisions that are taken there affect us all, whether that's on climate change or agricultural policy or any number of different things. Third, of course, you know. China now makes half the world's cars, I think it is, 80% of the world's computers, about 90% of the world's phones. You know, whatever we want to do, whatever that involves, China's part of that conversation. So the idea that we can cut ourselves off or would want to cut ourselves off is ridiculous. We don't want to go into a Cold War sort of stage with China. We want to have an engagement with China, but one that doesn't see us selling our values and putting our people at risk. Uh, when we do that. And actually, frankly, that also makes sure that the Chinese people aren't at risk either. So what should Britain's approach to China be uh, compared to what it currently is? I and mean, we've got a Conservative government. Um, do you think broadly they, they deal with China in the correct way? Well, as you, as you know, this Conservative administration always listens to everything I recommend. So uh, <laughs> no, no doubt they'll be taking their pens out. Um, look, I mean, the the key, the key to Britain's place in the world in this is is the key to, to how we manage this uh, this change. Because the reality is, Britain Britain's success over the last uh, couple of hundred years after the gunboats stopped was because we wrote the rules. Right, we we set the norms and set the terms of trade that everybody else um, either was forced into or opted into. And and let's not forget, the last seventy years really, it's mostly people opting into it including China, by the way, since 2000, and they're joining the WTO. These, these norms and these rules that you know, we see as sort of soft power, things like accountancy and maritime trade and whatever else, you know, have set the UK at the heart of an international system that is now being challenged because a major part of it, China, is refusing to play by the rules. Now, we can either confront China, which I think would be unsuccessful and unwise uh, and lead to a conflict that's unnecessary. Or we can work with other countries around the world to reinforce the international order that actually keeps us all safe, right? Now, this is why I think we should be working really closely with Japan and Indonesia and India and, you know, I mean, I can keep going and, you know, and setting up uh, groups of countries who broadly speaking, agree on the principles of the international order, agree on the principles of the rule of law, and are willing to invest energy and time to defend it. Because if we don't, then countries that do not agree with it, that seek to use 
dictatorial state power to undermine it will get advantage. And you know, there's some pretty there's some pretty stark examples of this. There is there's another international body that I don't know if you've heard of called the International Telecoms Union. This is one of these really for many many years. This was a proper geek fest. Okay, it was all about setting. Um, the norms for international radio transmission, basically, and, and, and telecoms. So it's it's a very technical body. But of course, funnily enough, the internet now falls to some degree under it. And China chairs it. We have the deputy chair. And what the Chinese government recently said, or rather what the Chinese envoy recently said uh, at this body, is that the way the internet works today doesn't doesn't really work for China, and they'd like to change it. They don't like this decentralized stuff. They don't like this, um, you know, Californian hippie stuff. What they want is they want a centralized state uh, apparatus, and uh, and they want it to be controllable, frankly, by uh, a government uh, in a in a in a national capital. Hmm. Can you see who that <laughs> might help? I mean, you know. And so, guess who's supporting them? I mean, come on, guess who's supporting them? Russia, Venezuela. I mean, you know, it's entirely predictable, right? Now, if we abandon these international organizations, they don't go away, you know, as Jerry Adams once famously put it. What happens is that somebody else dominates them. And, and, you know, there's a very simple rule in uh, negotiation. And I don't care whether you're negotiating for, you know, well, whatever you're negotiating for. You may think things are going badly while you're at the table. When you leave the table, trust me, they will go worse for you. They really will. And the, and the problem that we've got at the moment is that too, much, too many um, major democratic states are, are leaving the table. And when you, I mean, it, it's hard not to immediately think of Britain's departure from the European Union as, as being a, a major departure from a major table. Does that weaken our ability then to, to influence? not just any global event, but specifically China? Well, it, it doesn't have to. It certainly changes it. Um, it means that we now have to work harder to bring similarly like-minded states together, right? Because it used to be that we spoke, and broadly speaking, 27 others, give or take, would usually come along somewhere towards where we were going. That now needs to be worked on on an individual basis. So that's why we've been arguing pretty hard on investing in bilateral relations. Now, I mean, there, there are other problems with the EU which make it not quite as black and white in that as, you know, um, not all the 27 are frankly united in the democratic camp anymore. Uh, so, you know, there's, there, are a few, there are a few issues there, to put it very politely. And that, um, you know, the challenges to the European Union do make, do make departure look different to, to how it looked, you know, five, six years ago. Um, but I think that the, the fundamental point is that, you know, the UK does have, for various reasons of accident, uh, a historic legacy, which means that people, broadly speaking, trust Britain to play by the rules. I mean, I wouldn't overstate that, but, you know, but they do. And, and the presence of British diplomats at events you know, and really does help international bodies. And so I think, you know, there's a real opportunity for us to to play not a command um, role in this international order, but an enabling role. And I think that's, you know, that's what we should be doing. And I, you know, I think it would be welcome. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of foreign ministers in the three years since I've been chairing this committee. And I can tell you that, you know, 
the major question people have is where the hell have you guys been? You know, wh why aren't you engaged in this particular aspect of foreign policy? Why aren't you helping you know, reorganize this aspect of a UN agency? And why haven't we been? Has it just been the distraction of Brexit and perhaps even before that, Iraq? Or is there another reason? I think it's been I think it's been many things, and I, I don't think it's just Brexit. I think it's you know in, in a way Brexit's a consequence rather than a cause. Um, I think for you know there's, there's been an illusion by some politicians that you know what all this the bureaucracy of diplomacy it's basically dull. You know <laughs> I, I can just pick up the phone and yeah. I can speak to my mate so and so and I can sort it out. So why do I need why do I need diplomats? Why do I need bureaucrats? And it's, you know, I'm reminded of the, you know, I'm reminded of the fact that when Britain went into the European Union in the 70s, we didn't often get our way. But by the 1980s, the government had realised that if you wanted to get your way, there's a pretty good way of doing it. You insist that British civil servants, in order to get promoted, must have done a stint in Brussels. So guess what? The good one's going to do a stint in Brussels. So within a few years, every single Many of the Brussels arms were dominated by British civil servants. So when you, when the Brit Prime Minister or Health Minister or Agriculture Minister or whatever walked into the room, there were three options on the table. All three had been prepared by a Brit. All three were basically acceptable to us, right? You may you may prefer option A over option C, but they were all broadly speaking okay. By the time you get into the sort of personal diplomacy of sort of one man walks into the room, really saves the day. You know, it's all about me and my relationship to Jacques and, and you know, Helmut. Guess what? You walk into the room, you do swing the room in your way because it's, you know, because you're bloody good at it and you're hugely persuasive and charismatic and, you know, got a fantastic, you know, personal relationship and, you know, speak French and everything is great. Who are you thinking of when you say this? I'll think. And, <laughs> but the reality is all the options on the table were ones you didn't want. Well, you know, if, if you're not willing to invest in a bureaucracy of diplomacy, I'm afraid, you end up with the options in front of you that, you, you know, the leader could walk in and sort of carry the day, but they can only get the best of the options available. And if all the options are awful, guess what? <laughs> you're never going to get a good option. And so it's, and this is where, this is where we've, you know, it's, I made the joke about the people who do their homework. You, you know, this is part of doing your homework, right? I mean, this is, this is how government works. If you, if you want to shape international organisations, you've got to send clever people over there to shape the debate. Otherwise, by the time you get to the table, the debate isn't something you want to talk about. There are other concerns about China's influence in the world, and specifically in the UK. And you touched on it really earlier about their production of mobile phones and mobile devices. And the government's decision, which surprised a lot of people, given that it's a Conservative government, to allow the Chinese technology firm Huawei to access the UK's 5G phone network. Now, given the few years that we've lived through, it seems like such a strange decision. I mean, maybe you can help us a bit. Are there any benefits to allowing Huawei access to our 5G network? Well, the reality is Huawei is already our 5G network. I mean, if you've got a three phone and you're using any other 5G, you're using Huawei, right? Huawei makes 100% of three, uh, of three's 5G infrastructure. It just does. 
it makes up to 80% of various different companies 4G infrastructure. It makes a certain percentage of other companies 3G and so on. Huawei has been in our telecom system since 2003. You know, this is not a, this is not a new arrival. So the government's decision is really not one of whether or not to allow Huawei in, but how quickly to get Huawei out. And that's the, that's the real challenge. Um, now, that's not the same as in the United States. It's not even the same as in France. In France, they um, started to remove Huawei in 2009 when they saw the, 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 the problems that we were facing. But this is, you know, I, I have to say, I agree with you. I was surprised at the decision. I was surprised at the decision because it's been taken twice by two conservative administrations, first by Theresa May and, and now by Boris Johnson. And I, I've been pretty vocal in criticizing both, as you, uh, as you, as you may know, um, because I think this is, a, this is a fundamental mistake. And it's a mistake for three reasons and a simple tactical error. You should never allow a general to choose their own battlefield. Uh, you should certainly not allow a general to design his own battlefield for his own, you know. And so you shouldn't, you certainly shouldn't let a, a hostile state actor uh, shape the infrastructure over which they're going to, <laughs> they're going to spy on you. Um, the second thing is, this is fantastically anti-competitive. This is a company that is basically massively subsidized by the Chinese state. And we won't allow steel dumping because we know it destroys jobs and ends up in an anti-competitive posture where, you know, reasonable companies simply can't compete. Uh, and one company ends up with a monopoly and ends up upping the prices, unsurprisingly. We, you know, this has been written about for a few years, and a certain Mr. Smith wrote about it in Scotland <laughs> a few hundred years ago. Um, so there's, you know, this isn't, you know, if we don't allow steel dumping, why should we allow tech dumping? I don't, I don't, I don't see why we should. And and the third reason is this is the strategic one. We spoke earlier about you know the fact that Britain wrote the rules of trade and that put us at the center of of the uh, you know global network. Well. This is the rules of trade for the for the next generation, right? You know, the code that we're coding in to 5G networks and then 6 and 7 and whatever else G is going to be, is going to shape the way that the internet works. And, you know, the Chinese have been pretty clear about this. This is, again, the point about studying, you know, read what they say. They're not being secretive here. Read what they say. They are trying to change the way the internet works and the way that the international telecommunication system works so that it works more according to their centrist, centralizing um, command economy. Now, you know, it's a fair enough thing for them to try and do. I happen to think it's, you know, not conducive to the public good, frankly. Uh, and I think it's not in the interest of the British people. So I will keep trying to stop them. I'm not, it doesn't make them evil for trying to do it. I just think they're wrong. Uh, and I think that the, um, I think that the government should be more alert to this because I think this is a very, very fundamental threat to the UK, much more so in many ways than any other country around the world, because we are so integrated in the globalised network. And that's why our economy is 80% services, right? We're 80% we're of the high end of the global economy because we wrote the rules, so we don't need to do the lower end anymore, right? We've, we've, upped, we've upped our workers up the value scale. This cuts the legs off our economy. And not tomorrow, but over 30, 40 years. So the, the implications of it, because most people's fear when they hear about stuff like this is perhaps their personal data. Uh, the, the, you know, your phone might be spying on you and all the rest of it. But actually, as well as that concern, perhaps, there's a far more severe concern that long term, 
we, we, we the technology we'll be using will be designed by our competitors and not just any old competitor but a competitor that itself is anti-competition i mean what what how would that actually work then would that mean that you know we're talking about the internet working in a different way would that mean it would be more censorious well, the, the, what the Chinese state is trying to do, again, I mean, you know, this is not a secret, right? You can, you can read all this. They are, they are absolutely clear about it. They are not secretive about it. They don't like having um, different points of influence, right, and a, and a dis- distributed ledger, right? They don't like the idea that you cannot switch off different nodes. So what do you think they're trying to do? They're trying to increase the control of the different nodal network, right? That's it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do if that's what you're trying to do, right? And and so that's that's what they're trying to do. And you know, I fail to see why we should be giving several billion pounds to a network that is deliberately trying to build a system that is not conducive to the way that we wish to live our lives. I mean, it, you know, because every time the problem is every time you write code, people think of code as a sort of a binary, right? Therefore, it's it's aim. It's not immoral. It's amoral. Right? It has no cultural value at all. It's just a series of noughts and ones. But of course, that's not true. Everything you write in code is absolutely part of the cultural understanding that you have of the world. So, what do you understand by privacy? You're coding that in, right? Because however you control something, you're coding the privacy. How are you coding in state control? How are you coding in authority? How are you coding in, you know, all these things? How are you coding all these different elements? Because if you don't, you know, it's absolutely fundamental to, you can probably hear my children screaming. I was going to say, talking of authority. Yeah, I know I have none. (laughs) But, you know, all of these things are coded in in exactly the same way that our culture is written into our law. Our law is fundamentally culturally based, right? Yes. And the same is true of of, of code in this sense. you're you're coding in the culture of the society that you live in and and at the moment you know we are allowing the chinese cultural codes to be embedded and the chinese cultural norms to be embedded and not just sort of chinese cultural norms in the sense of you know confucian or whatever you know this isn't taiwan we're culture we're, we're coding in this is the communist party of china that's different If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So what would the actual effect be on, you know, let's say 20 years' time, would it be just about the sort of stuff you can get on your phone or the way your phone works? Would this disproportionately uh, affect particular industries? What are we talking to each other on here, Matt? Um, a MacBook. Yeah. Well, first of all, yes. Oh, the internet. And it's Zoom. Yes, Zoom, yeah. Right. So um, Zoom is a, a Chinese company. Um, and at the moment, it has to run on a distributed system which allows certain forms of encryption to be added on. And it also, for various different ways, it, it, you know, it runs over networks that, don't, that aren't built in exactly the same way, so they're not totally standardised, right? Imagine the whole thing is standardised in 20, 30 years' time, and every time a new Zoom competitor wants to start up, they have to ask for network permission, which they don't get you'll then be limited to one or two providers, all of whom controlled by a single point. If you, Matt, keep broadcasting this kind of freedom of thought, I'm going to switch you off. Do you see what I mean? You you code in much more norms. Now, that's a pretty crude example because that's to do with media freedom and it's pretty stark. But actually, you can can see it in competition as well, that it, it just massively limits the ability to compete. Now, I think that's bad for the entire world. I don't think it's just bad for China. I think, you know, there's a reason I'm not a communist, right? And it's not just because they're brutal dictators. It's because I think it's a system of government that massively fails. Um, you know, so I think there's a, I think there's a, you know, this isn't just about, this isn't just about internet. This is about how we run ourselves. So why then have two conservative prime ministers taken that decision? Is is it too simple to say, well, Brexit slightly changed things and what they both needed were kind of big international deals outside of Europe that say, hey, look, you know, Britain's turning itself outwards to the world and we're going to do a great deal with the Chinese. Or is there something else? Look, I don't know is the honest answer. All I can do is take them at face value. And and what they both said is there is a cost to delaying 5G rollout in the UK and it's a cost that they think is too high. Well, I accept there is a cost. I, I'm not denying that, but, you know, as as your hero and, and mentor put it, to, to governors to choose, right? It's uh, you know, saying no is the hardest thing, and it's um, and it's uh, that's right. There is a cost, but I think it's a cost that not only is worth paying, but that we have to pay, and that you know, delaying five G rollout by a, a few months, possibly a, a year or two, is I'm afraid I think necessary. If you know, if it has to be. By the way, I'm not absolutely convinced it is necessary because. Funnily enough, there's quite a lot of other providers who reckon that they can do it uh, in half the time, you know, uh, and and much more effectively. But if we're going to believe that the UK should have autonomous capabilities in uh, in areas like uh, defence and and security, then I'm afraid we simply have to be willing to invest in our um, in in our our networks. And, you know, we're about to spend 100 billion pounds on a train network. It seems strange that we're not prepared to spend a few hundred million on um, on a telecoms network. 
it's always tempting in these sorts of discussions where there's a choice between open democratic countries and uh, dictatorships that are very powerful. The temptation is to always think about Cold War comparisons. But do you think some of those comparisons are are helpful in a way and, and a good way to help people think about the fact that values are always at stake? And if countries don't act and if democracies don't come together, particularly democracies of our size, the world can change very quickly and the world will be changed by people who we don't agree with. So I think, first of all, the world can change very quickly. And, and, and this we're already seeing. And, you know, you see the way. Look, the Philippines just unilaterally withdrew from its defense alliance with the United States a few years ago. I mean, seriously, the Philippines withdraw. And this is, you know, this country was a U.S. colony a hundred and something years ago after it was a Spanish colony and has been a partner of the United States for the best part of 100 years. And it's withdrawn not because they've fallen out with the United States, but because the Chinese have put huge pressure on them. Now, that's a pretty strong indicator that things can change, that the norms can change. And what the Chinese government is trying to do with things like the Belt and Road Initiative, and indeed with the huge soft loans to various countries in sub-Saharan Africa, is to change the norm. So that instead of looking for help from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or whoever it is, you look for help from Beijing. But I don't think this is, you know, this isn't the Cold War. And, and you know, we shouldn't be trying to pretend it is. Because that's not the kind of conflict we're in. We're in a battle of ideas where there is huge amounts of power on both sides. But this time, you know, the, the thing about the Cold War is you really had to believe it if you were a communist because you weren't going to get rich off the Sovs, were you? And, uh, and you know, the, 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 the traitors who went to Moscow did not exactly live in luxury. You know, Philby or McLean or one of them, you know, his great luxury was to have his pyjamas sent over from his tailor in London. And I'm, you know, it's not, unless you're Jacob, I think that's probably not the greatest luxury in the world. <laughs> and the, um, but I think there's... But now what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, a Chinese state that is communist only in name, you know, with billionaires like, you know, Tencent and, and Alibaba dominating a global economy. And they're able to pay. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're competing in a very, very different world. So this is this is not the Cold War and it shouldn't be compared to it. And, you know, that's not what we're looking at. What, we, what we're looking at is a, is a real battle of ideas where I think the stakes are much higher uh, and we've really got to, we've got to make sure that our values win out. Otherwise, we are going to see, I mean, you and I will be completely irrelevant by then anyway, but, you know, our, our, our children and grandchildren finding that they're growing up in a very, very different world. You mentioned security earlier in terms of people's phones. You yourself, since um, speaking out about uh, your, your views of the Chinese regime, have been, I mean, is hacked the right word, impersonated online? And do you think yeah. it's linked to that? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely linked to that. Um, so uh, what happened? It, oh, there's a, a few journalists um, have received uh, emails from, inverted commas, me, not from me, claiming various things. In fact, there was there was one thing when during the election campaign, so I, I started speaking about, out about China a while ago, as you may know, and we put out a report just before the election. 
uh, condemning um, Chinese state control in our university system in the UK. Actually, we were condemning um, our university system and our government for not doing enough to resist it. But, you know, nuanced point, I get it. Um, and the um, and the Chinese, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. Somebody completely unknown who'd registered an email in Beijing was sending out emails to people like the South China Morning Post and others um, claiming that I... Uh, had done X, Y, and Z and had agreed with the Prime Minister to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, this would be announced as soon as the government was formed. And they were all signed off by me, MP, as chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And thank goodness most of the journalists were sensible enough to give me a call and say, this is strange, you're not an MP at the moment, are you? And I went, no. And you're not the chair of the committee, are you? No. And so they didn't run any of the stories. But the clear intention was just to, to be a nuisance, basically. Did it look like it was from you, apart from the 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 they overlooking the detail of you're not technically an MP while you're seeking re-election, and the same for the chair of a select committee? Would it have been believable the rest of it? Vaguely, vaguely, yeah. I mean, it was it was like a you know, I, I as you know, I, I use a, a sort of a Yahoo type email, right? And uh, and it was a it was the same it was the same provider with a slightly different name. So unless you were looking, you wouldn't have noticed that it was that it was not from me. And, and does it, that you know, worry you? Nah, it's professional courtesy, isn't it? <laughs> but do you not think, well, this is just the start. What are they going to do next? Yeah, it is just the start. And I know what they're going to do next. They're going to uh, hack into video calls like this and be a nuisance. Um, I, you know, they'll hack into my phone. They'll, you know, but, you know, what do you expect? I'm, I'm. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to uh, uh, stop uh, a, a state that is genuinely trying to change the international rules-based system to its to its end. So, what, what do you think they're going to do? Of course, they're going to fight back. I mean, yeah, like, I know, but it's, it's worrying enough if people get a prank call or what the old pranks used to be: people sending pizzas to people's houses. You got the Chinese government hacking well, your phone. I mean, in terms of your personal data and your banking and all that. That must be a huge worry. Well, I had the Iranian government trying to kill me in Afghanistan. That was kind of less personal, wasn't it? Oh, no, it was. I mean, it was targeted. It was personal. But I mean, look, wow. it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's. Do these things matter or don't they? Right. I mean, that's that's the question, isn't it? Yes, but these tactics do put other people off. Of course they do, which is why those of us who are able to, to 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 call it out have got a responsibility to do it, because not everybody can. You know, other people may have, uh, you know, vulnerable family at home. Other people may have, you know, for, for many people, they don't have the ability to do it. And and the reason, I mean, bluntly, the reason people are elected in our system, the entire point of a representative system is that you you elect people to champion a cause and to defend an interest that actually matters, right? If 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 you want if you want somebody to cut the ribbon at the village fair, go to go and ask some some celeb, right? That's that's what that's for. The point about being in representative politics is to take up fights that matter to defend the community and the country that you serve. Otherwise, there's no point, really. I mean, you know, otherwise I might as well go and get another job. Yeah, well, of course I agree with that, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure every politician would, and and that actually it's it's perfectly fine to say and think those things. But when you're put in the position where they do start to hack your phone, 
then doubt does start to creep in. Do you think that battlefield experience has uh, has, has has helped you? The, the the military background, when you've seen a threat on your life, this stuff's easier to take. I mean, I think it's easier to put things in context. It also, by the way, you know, I know from previous work the capabilities of the British government in various different ways, and I know that um, you know those resources will help defend. Uh, the democracy that we're we're trying to promote, right? So uh, I know that the agencies will be keeping a close eye and seeing what's going on and helping out where they can. So, you know, I also know what firepower we've got too. So, so it, that does help as well. I mean, it's you know, it's it's always it's always important to know where the regimental aid post is before you go into battle, right? <laughs> so you served in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, with the territorial army. So how do you end up in a situation where? The Iranians are trying to kill you in Afghanistan. And why were they targeting you specifically? Oh, because I was the advisor to the governor of Helmand. And so, because I mean, it, in a way, it wasn't personal. It was just I happened to be filling that post. <laughs> yeah. and, and and that made me um, a sort of the link person between um, the Afghan authorities and um, uh, and the uh, and, and the Western, broadly speaking, the Western coalition. And so, um, and, and it was at a rather odd time when the, Iranians having nearly gone to war with the Taliban in 2001 um, were then helping the uh, Taliban with uh, various different um, explosive technology. And how close did they come to getting you? Oh, um, they killed a few of the bodyguards I was, uh, I had. So really close? Yeah, yeah, really close. And that is absolutely petrified. I mean, it, I can't imagine. The, the fear you must have felt. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, uh, <laughs> they weren't great days, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, it, what's mad is, you're there as a member of the TA. I mean, when most people join the TA, they think, you know, I do some roly-polies in a field at the weekend. It's basically like the Krypton factor. I miss the scouts. <laughs> they don't think... <laughs> Surely they don't yeah, that's, think... That's pretty much right, yeah. It's like the scouts with heavy artillery. <laughs> think I'm going to end up in Afghanistan with the Iranian government trying to kill me. Well, you say that, but the actually, by the time... By the time I... So I went to Afghanistan in 2005, and then I went down to Helmand in 2006. And the by the time I was going down there, the reality was that the... Um, uh, uh, you know, about ten percent of the deployed forces were were reservists. So you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, most people who who joined the TA knew what they were signing up for. Yeah, I mean, I joined up in two thousand because I wanted to go on adventurous holidays, uh, and thinking that we you know, I'd go and build a few wells in Congo or something like that as a sort of armored aid worker. And actually, the world changed, and yeah. and that's not what I got to do. But you know, that'll teach me for being drunk and signing on the dotted line. But the um, you signed up drunk. No, I didn't. But I mean, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's just an expression. But the, uh, <laughs> but I certainly made the most of the mess afterwards. The, um, but the, um, you know, I, I joined at a time where I thought, you know, I was absolutely bored, senseless uh, in the city, and uh, and and joined to do something on the side, as it were, and then and then the world changed. Yeah. And then you end up in pretty much in the line of fire. Yeah, but I mean, you know, 
I wasn't special. Quite a lot of other people did too, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just me. And and you know, mates of mine like James Heapy and 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 Johnny Mercer uh, also did. What I was going to ask, there seems to be maybe it's just confirmation bias, but Johnny Mercer, James Cleverly, Dan Jarvis, yourself, others. There seems to be a new class of military politicians. Do you think it is as a result of Iraq and Afghanistan that? Not that the military got politicised, but perhaps military people thought about politics after that a bit more and then saw politics as a route. Look, I think... I think one of the things about... You know, the bit that people always focus on about the military element is that, oh, yeah, yeah you're out there and, you know, you, you know about foreign affairs and defence and, you know, fighting for your country and all that. Actually, it's for me, it was about learning about my country. I mean, there's... There's nothing quite like spending, you know, months on end sleeping next to a bunch of guys from all across the UK to learn about the UK. Yeah. You know, there was one one guy on the, on our first morning in Iraq, you know, we've literally just got in the night before and we're laid up in a wadi and looking over our gun sights, our rifle sights, sort of looking at, you know, waiting for something not to happen or rather hoping nothing will happen. And, and indeed it didn't. But we were there and for two or three hours, the guy next to me was telling me about, you know, his childhood and, you know, how he'd been sold by his grandfather to a Lincolnshire farmer. And even in the 70s, that and even in Lincolnshire, that was thought to be a bit much that you were selling children. That was that was considered too much. Uh, and so he got taken into care and, and had a pretty, pretty horrific time of it and and was saved by joining the Royal Marines. And uh you know, at 16 and a half, went, went into the Royal Marines and, and, and made a fantastic career of it. And in fact, has now done very well for himself and all the rest of it. But we were sitting there and discussing, you know, everything from his childhood to, a, you know, his vasectomy a few months earlier. And, it, and, and you know, you really learn about your country yeah. when, you're, when you're talking to people from across the place. Because how, how often, I mean, Matt, people talk about the bubble the whole time. We all live in a bubble to a certain extent, right? Yeah. I mean, for some people, it's Westminster. For some people, it's their their company. For some people, it's their family. For whatever it is, it's very difficult. It's very rare to get to meet people from really across the whole of the UK. And you know, in Helmand in Afghanistan, I served with everybody from the grandson of the Queen to some bloke who was sold into care, aged two and a half. You know, that's a pretty big cross section. And one of the things that really strikes you is, hang on a minute we could do a lot of this much better, you know, and it's not just the soldiering bit or the foreign affairs bit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's what I'm focusing on now, but the reality is why did I get all the opportunities? You know, why is it that, you know, kids like me found it pretty easy to go through uh, life and end up, you know, good schools and good universities and relatively easy to keep and get jobs. Why, why didn't he, why is he so exceptional? Why is it only the military that has saved him. Surely the military isn't the answer for everyone. In fact, we know the military isn't the answer for everyone. So what happens to kids like him who don't go into the Royal Marines at 16 and a half? And if you're not, you know, if you if you meet people like him and you know, because he's told you, that his brother has been in and out of prison, you wonder why is it, you know, what can we do to, to do this better? Because his brother isn't a better or worse person than he is. So what, what can we do? And so that I think that's one of the things that, you know, it's the knowing your country that gets you into politics. 
but also I imagine you get to know yourself pretty well when you're put in severe situations like that where you you go into war and you've got not just the Taliban after you but the Iranian government did you learn anything about yourself on those missions yeah, well, I mean, you, you know you, you know what matters but do you, I mean, you know, without being cliched but do you come back from those sort of experiences as a changed man oh it's thinner <laughs> I guess that's a yes of sorts, isn't it? <laughs> um, look, I mean, of course you do. But I mean, I wouldn't overstate it. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you know, everything we do changes us, right? I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, helping out in the local community group or, or, or you know, many of the guys who are on the front line now in our hospitals, um, you know, they're changed people. The, you know, the, the, the midwives who've been, you know, having to help people give birth in very, very different, difficult circumstances. This is going to change the way that they do their job and the way that they view, you know, the risks that they take, even even though, you know, the job in many ways won't have changed, you know. So everything we do changes people. But it does, you know, I look, I got a lot out of soldiering. Uh, I, I, I loved it. I loved the men and women I served with, and, and I had a fantastic... Uh, I had a fantastic time. It was a huge privilege. And what is the answer then to the to the conundrum that you that you explain there of the differences in background and the differences in opportunity that exist in this land for people depending on the accident of birth or the wealth of their parents? What is the conservative answer to that? And, and will the Tories ever be radical enough? Do you think at combating inequality and giving people from all backgrounds a decent start in life? God, yes. You, you know we've been radical. The Conservative Party has been the most radical party ever, right? This is, this is I know you lot... Tackling on the, those on the, problems. Huh? But in tackling inequality in the UK, of, okay, of, who, of, of, of did, opportunity. All right, Matt, who did the biggest distribution of wealth in UK history? Well, in modern years, the... the, the the Blair government was the, no. the biggest redistributor no, of wealth. No, that's not true. It was the, the gap between the, the gap between Richard Moore closed for the first time in God knows how long. Matt, you, you know that the biggest act of redistribution was the sale of state assets and the sale of the council houses. That but that was put, helping some people, wasn't it? Well, it was helping a huge number of people, but a certain I mean, type of person, perhaps. Well, people who were, who were in council houses and anybody who wanted to uh, to buy a share in BP or BT or whatever the various different national companies were, and British Gas and so on. So, you know, there was a huge amount of redistribution done then by a Conservative government. It wasn't done by, you know, taxing some and giving it to others in sort of raw benefits. It was done in a direct, uh, sorry, in a, in, a, in a, you know, in an ownership model. And I think that's where conservative redistribution is really powerful because actually it respects or values the idea of the individual uh, but realizes the individual is part of a wider community and that's where you know I mean you've heard me speak about this in the past I you know it's not enough to pay somebody for their for their day labor you've got to give them a share of the profits and this is why I believe in you know Greg's pasties uh, are, are the moral answer to well to everything really first of all they are fantastic and anybody yes. who's seen me knows that i am not shy of a pasty 
and uh, and and secondly, the the way they do share distribution is a real is a really strong example. Yes. Uh, you know, there are other companies who do it too, but you know, these are conservative answers to redistribution, and I think they really do uh, have a place. I mean, I think I think this is what you know what we should be in politics to do, which is to help people. So, is, is Tom Tugendhat a neo Thatcherite? God, I, I mean, I, I I've never understood what a Thatcherite is because, <laughs> I mean, I'm you know. I never met Margaret Thatcher. I mean, well, it doesn't mean you can't agree with her. No, it doesn't. But it, but you know, she she left power when I was still at school. I mean, you know, it's like she had a, she had amazingly good answers for a period of time that was twenty thirty years ago. I don't I don't think there's any point in being neo anything. I think what you've got to be is you've got to be pragmatic to the to the world in which we find it. And I have to say, I mean, you know, there are some real tragedies going on at the moment and let's not kid ourselves that the covid crisis is anything other than a major major disaster but there are some real opportunities too because the way that this government has dealt with covid and, and by the way you know rishi sunak turning the treasury you know from a thousand years of it taking money out of your pocket to in six weeks it's pushing money in you know that's pretty impressive that's pretty lightning turnaround you know this government has has really changed to support the economy and support people, most importantly, uh, during this crisis. And there's a real opportunity to, to build off this because a lot of this debt is not going to be repaid. We know that because the companies will go out of business or the individuals won't be able to, to refund. So why not look at it differently? Why not say, OK, you can convert this debt to equity if you give it to your employees. You can convert, you know, you don't have to pay back, you know, the furlough scheme can endure so long as you contribute X amount in, in employee equity ownership or whatever. You know, this could be a really transformative moment for the UK to see a proper, uh, you know, inclusive one nation government delivering for the whole country. Have you spoken to Rishi Sunak about that? Do you get a sense that that's the sort of thing they might do? Look, I think Rishi is one of the cleverest people in politics today. And, uh, and I'm sure he will be having his own ideas. I don't think he needs mine. But, um, well, if it's a good idea, which he's it is, not need anything I say. <laughs> no, look, I mean he's he's genuinely brilliant. I mean, I was really lucky to 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 get to know him before we uh, before we were elected. I got to know him a little bit, and he's one of the most impressive people I've I've met. But you know, he's another classic example of conservatism, right? I mean, he's he's a kid from uh, I mean, pretty ordinary backgrounds. Uh, I think his mum's a doctor, his dad's a pharmacist, or the other way around, and. And, uh, you know, gets a couple of scholarships, goes a long way, makes a lot of money. True. You know, good luck to him. And then decides to serve and goes into politics. And I have to say huge credit to him because he's he's not doing it for the cash. Right. I mean, he's you know, he's doing it because it matters. And he's right. It does matter. And, th- and there's a whole collection of people in politics today. By the way, I'm you know obviously I'm a conservative, so I think we're we're the best, and everyone else is a sinner. But no, I mean there are some fantastic people on both sides, and you know Dan Jarvis is another example. Dan and I served together in combat in Afghanistan, and I have to say he is one of the most decent, principled, and courageous people I know. Isn't that incredible that you served together in Afghanistan and then you both end up in the House of Commons? Yeah, I have to say it was a bit of a surprise to both of us. <laughs> <laughs> But did you get the sense then? Did you think he'd be a great politician? Were you talking politics? Uh, n- not party politics. We were talking. I mean, we certainly spoke about ideas. Yeah, yeah. But but we didn't we didn't talk party politics. And of course, we mostly focused on you know Afghan defence and stuff like that. But the because um, we were in the middle of the desert in Afghanistan. 
Um, but I, I can't say I'm surprised. I must say, you know, I was I was delighted he did it. I mean, he's on the wrong side, obviously, but and he's wrong about almost everything. But he's, <laughs> but he's an absolutely brilliant guy. And, and and I'm very glad that people of integrity are in politics. And, you know, he's he's a really impressive individual. And, and so I'm delighted. And is there a kind of ex-military club in Parliament? Do those of you who've served kind of get together for a cup of tea or a pint? Is there a loose network? The sort of, you know, Swarfiga and... <laughs> you know, the, um, no, there's a sort of a loose network and there's always sort of keep in touch, yeah. But um, But it's mostly that it's... Conversations are easier if you if you have a common language, right? I mean, that doesn't matter whether you were all in medicine or in the army or all in football or whatever, you know. But whatever you were in, if you if you have a sort of a common a common understanding of, of where you're from, as it like, if you like, then it just makes it easier. And so, yeah, for 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 all of us, it makes it easier. Tom, there are so many more things we haven't even spoken about India really in any great detail or Russia at all. Um, so hopefully, we can have this chat. Forget about Russia. Focus on India. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we can have this chat again. Well, I hope we have a different chat, but chat again. Um, and hopefully in person. Well, mate, that'll never catch on. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sticking to social distancing, if you don't mind. Okay, we'll stick to that. But hopefully <laughs> hopefully over a secure 5G network that doesn't get hacked. Yeah. There you go, Tom Tugan Hart as I believe it should have been pronounced, but he was very gracious about me mispronouncing it, hopefully the irony of that, mispronouncing it at the start. Uh, and what a great conversation, because he's clearly got such a broad area of expertise when it comes to foreign policy, as you would have to as chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, but mixed with really intense personal experience serving uh, with the army abroad in Iraq and Afghanistan. And on top of that, just a, a a a brilliant ability to keep things light and and in a way that doesn't trivialize the subject matter and what a sweet spot that is in politics don't we need that right now um so that was i just loved that and i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did thank you so much for downloading this thank you to those of you that have taken a couple of seconds to leave an itunes review i know I was going to sound like a stuck record, but obviously that would be uh, vinyl era banter this is uh, digital download age. Um, but if you if you could just leave an iTunes review, it just helps other people find it, and uh, I would really appreciate it. So thank you, and I hope you find in uh, hope you find in all this okay. I am, uh, as I've mentioned before, trying to get the balance right between just doing political chats that are at the side of you know not not explicitly about coronavirus, and obviously dealing with some of the bigger issues about it. I think it would be odd to do a political podcast and not talk about the virus, but I don't want it to be all about that. And I'm aware, I can feel it in myself, actually, that I'm taking the news in, but I'm definitely rationing my exposure to the news day by day. And for a show that, of course, is meant to be informative, but hopefully entertaining as well, I don't want to uh, add to the psychological burden. You know, if this is your hour of escapism, I don't want to be talking about coronavirus the whole time. So I am trying to get the balance right. Um, And obviously that will be, depending on what situation you find yourself in, uh, different for each individual. But uh, I hope you appreciate that. I am just trying to get that right because I am mindful um, that there's a lot of it out there at the moment. And after a while, there's only so much you're going to take in and would want to listen to for a number of different reasons. So I've got some great guests coming up. And I thought today with Tom, obviously, if you're talking about China, 
you've got to talk about coronavirus, but I thought it was a good way of talking about it and just getting his getting his view really and and, and having a broader conversation really about China's influence on the world and um, our potential influence on China. Um, So, yes, I hope you're well and uh, I hope you're coping okay and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.